0: Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and I am so thrilled to be talking with Erin Carr about the opioid crisis and her new book, Strung Out, One Last Hit and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me. Erin, thanks again for joining us from New York. Thank you so much for having me. So you have been writing for some time on addiction and recovery and mental health, and I know that you are at the point of giving an advice column, and I think I've seen some of your your stuff in Self and other places where young people are trying to learn more about themselves. At what point did you decide to come clean about your own drug use?
1: Well, you know, I mean, in my own life, people knew about it, known about it for some time. It's been seventeen years that I've been drug free, so I, you know, I've had that time and space to sort of open up to people in my life about it, and on a professional basis and or a public basis, I started really opening up about two thousand and ten when I started publishing more pieces that had to do with addiction and recovery. And between those sort of those essays and articles and then my advice column, I discovered that the more that I opened up about it the greater um, response that I got from other people.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Where when you when we finally all cop to being human, then everybody's yes. like, "Oh, I, now I really like you." <laughs> that's, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I read the book, and it and it's stunning. And one of the things that really struck me was the conversation that you had with your eight-year-old son. Is that right? He was eight when he asked he was, you if you he did was dr- drugs.
1: Twelve. 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 Yeah. Okay.
0: And if you would just talk about that conversation that you had with your son.
1: Sure. So um, when he was 12, he had just turned 12, we were watching the news and there was something on the news about someone who had overdosed. And he turned to me and said, Mom, did you ever do drugs? And I really didn't know how to answer it because I did. And I wasn't sure how or when I I should answer the question. So over the course of a few months as I I thought about it, I really knew that I had to answer the question before he turned 13, because I was 13 when I started using drugs. Yeah. So I sat him down one day and just told him that I needed to talk to him and told him, without going into great detail, that I had really struggled with depression and anxiety when I was a kid, that I had been abused by the son of a family friend and I didn't tell anyone about it and that I thought something was wrong with me for feeling this way. And I told him that I started using heroin when I was 13. And he asked a couple of questions. He didn't really ask for many details. And then he looked at me and gave me a hug and said, Mom, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Which was like I never predicted that that would be his response. Incredible. And I really wanted him to know in our conversation that, of course, I wouldn't wish for him to, to have the same sort of path that I did, but that if he ever found himself struggling with either depression, anxiety, um, or with addiction, that he knows that he can come to me with that, and that I'm never going to judge him, and that I'll do anything I can to help, and I think that Just having that line of communication open is so important for parents to have with their kids.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And especially to be able to, once again, hold yourself up as a human who may have made some mistakes, but you want to be open about the things that your kids are struggling with. It's so huge. I I find it interesting that your son said, have you ever done drugs? And the first time you used heroin, it was a boyfriend who said, have you ever done heroin? Mm Mm-hmm that is mm-hmm. such an interesting kind of loop around on those questions, right. you know, and, and with both of them, a little bit of shock and surprise, but with your boyfriend, a willingness to say, no, I want to try it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by how casually that conversation was approached. And yeah, I think I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's because I grew up with heroin as this very scary drug it was the last gate that you go through when you're mm-hmm. when you're attempting drugs why not more fear and paranoia about that particular drug
1: i mean part of it may have been that i was so young yeah. i knew i knew a little bit about heroin i was pretty well read i read a lot of like adult books and watched a lot of probably <laughs> movies that weren't appropriate so i had i had some knowledge of it but i didn't really understand the repercussions of yeah. that or what that would mean for me. And I really didn't care. <laughs> I was at a place that I was struggling so much with regulating my emotions with um, this feeling like I just needed to escape my body and to escape these overwhelming feelings that really he could have asked me if I wanted to try anything and I would have said yes.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, I know that when my parents first found out that I had been doing drugs, and they didn't find out for 10 years, they were so shocked, and there were so, so many questions, and they really didn't understand, like, how I could cross that line, and I think that what's important for people who haven't experienced addiction to understand is that that line is crossed long before the drugs come into the picture for most people. Yeah. There's a big difference between experimenting with drugs, which is something which a lot of people do, and is fairly normal part of growing up in this day and age and versus somebody who is really looking to find an escape, an exit, a way out of their reality in some way.
0: I think, you know, the way that you speak about, well, it's just your writing is so present and so compelling, but you really do show the complete overlap of drug use with mental illness in a way Mm That allows us to go. Oh, okay. When they say that they're self-medicating, now I get it. Right? Mm -hmm. They really are finding whatever it is that can help them not feel as if their skin is going to actually crawl off and into the corner. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that that's true for most people who've struggled with some sort of substance use disorder. I think that, you know, I mean, there are. Also I think for some people there may be physiological differences in the brain certainly with alcohol there are certain people that when they ha- when they drink alcohol something happens physiologically that's different to them than people who don't have that genetic makeup so there's that you know that which is a separate sort of thing but I think that <clears throat> if you if you look at the data among people particularly among opioid addicts the co- there is a common occurrence of mental health issues, be that depression, anxiety, or a host of other things, and there is often some sort of childhood trauma. And for young women, it's often sexual in nature. Um, When I was in rehab the second time, one of my doctors was Dr. Drew Pinsky, who is well known for his uh, for speaking about and being on television for, you know, talking about addiction and, and how it plays out in people. And he spoke of this sort of, you know, trifecta of mental illness, childhood trauma, and addiction. Yeah. So that was like, right. He said that the, that the childhood trauma and mental illness are rocket fuel for addiction. And I think that that's very true. I've certainly seen that among other people I know who've struggled.
0: I I find it really um, fascinating, especially when you're talking to people about the connection between trauma and mental illness and and drug use and all of these things, that there is a way that finding a drug, any drug that can help you not Mm self-harm, not die by suicide during those years is in a way a stay alive mechanism. And it's it's uh, so counterintuitive, but it truly is a mechanism of staying alive.
1: Absolutely. I say in the book and say in life that heroin once kept me alive and that is very difficult for people to understand, but until I explain it, which is is basically what you just did, is that, you know, I really could not stand being in my body. I want, I would sit on my hands certain days because I wanted to jump out the window Mm -hmm. and this, you know, heroin gave me a way that I could physically remain here, but be disconnected enough from my body and disconnected enough from those feelings that I could handle it.
0: I want to talk about how you moved from Mm -hmm. use with your boyfriend to Mm -hmm. full-blown addict. If you could Mm -hmm. just give people a little bit of the background of how that occurs, because I think, you know, I think people who don't use think this. Well, you did it once and you probably realized it was really amazing, but dangerous. Why did you keep doing it? So answer that question for the skeptic critic out there, if you would.
1: Sure. So, you know, like I I had explained before, I think that addiction takes hold before the drugs are there. Yeah. So once that drug is there, your brain and body see that as a solution to those overwhelming feelings. So as much as I could intellectually know (laughs) that something isn't a good idea, the desperation with which I wanted to leave my body and leave those feelings behind was so much stronger than any sort of rationale. So I, you know, in the first several months of using heroin, I didn't use it every day. I used it on weekends when I would go, you know, lie to my mom and say I was spending the night at someone's house and go see him. And it wasn't even every weekend, but it was most weekends. Um, it did progress for me to a point <clears throat> where I had things going on at home. My grandmother passed away, and um, there was just a lot going on where I would sometimes bring it home with me, and I would always do it at night alone in my room. It wasn't done like I'd you know, not do it during the day. And you know, in those early years of using, I was really able to sort of control it in that way for a long time. As I got older and the heroin came back into my life, that sort of went out the window pretty quickly, but I still controlled it as much as I could because I did see it as a way for me to function in the world. When I wasn't on drugs, those were the times when my parents were alarmed by my behavior. That was when they sent me to therapy because I was erratic. I couldn't control my ero- my emotions. I was all over the place. They thought I was on drugs then, and those were the times when I was sober. So I think that you know, every time everyone thought that I was doing okay were the times when I was using.
0: Wow, isn't that (laughs) wild?
1: Yeah, and I think that that says a lot because we have so much, we so much latch onto this concept that we see, you know, especially with the opioid crisis. There's this idea that, that, you know, opioid users are falling over in the street like zombies. And while certainly, you know, addiction can take you to those places, there are a lot of people who function on drugs for very long periods of time. And while I may have been a bit of an anomaly at that time, you know, the first time I went to rehab, I was one of three women, the youngest person there by a decade, and the only heroin addict. Wow. Today, those demographics have shifted enormously, and there are thousands and thousands of young women like me. Yeah.
0: It was encouraging to me that you finally did talk about the abuse that you suffered at the hands of a neighbor, Um, but have you ever gone into deep therapy with your parents, who, by the way, are divorced, for people listening, um, to really explain the trauma of that experience to them so that they knew exactly when all of this began? I mean...
1: To a certain extent, I've certainly discussed this much more with my mother now. Yeah. I don't have, I haven't discussed it in as much detail with my father. They've both read the book um, and they probably know a lot more from reading the book than what I've been entirely comfortable with speaking about Mm one-on-one. I've definitely done a lot of work and continue to do work because I think it's a lifelong process in therapy processing this, you know, it's, I'd like to say that, you know, that early childhood trauma like that, just you go to therapy and you get it done and you move on. But it for me, it just hasn't worked like that. And I think that that's true for a lot of people, particularly with that sort of early childhood abuse. And I don't know, you know, I I have so much more empathy for my parents now that I'm a parent. Yeah. You know, I... I understand how hard it was when I first told my mother, um, you know, I was 19, the first time that I said anything to her. And I was very vague. And, you know, part of the reason I was vague is that it's still a very tricky thing to line up all of the facts. Mm. And I think that part of that is the way that trauma is stored. It doesn't record in your brain the way that it would. Like, for, you know, for this conversation you and I are having right now, if we thought back about this day, we would remember it in a fairly linear way. Right. With trauma, our brain stores it very differently and disperses it, I believe, throughout your body. And you you come to have sort of these pieces of it and you kind of have to put it back together, mm. which is very frustrating because it makes you doubt reality. It makes you doubt what happened. It makes you unclear as to what happened. And it can take a very long time, perhaps even a lifetime to sort through all of that.
0: It's fascinating that you talk about that because, you know, I'm just such a big proponent of the body keeps score mm-hmm. and yes, the exactly. ability of our polyvagal nerve to to do exactly what you just described, mm-hmm. it, which is give us Um, feelings of uncomfortableness and anxiety in our skin that we don't Mm -hmm. quite recognize, but they are, in fact, trauma stored in that nervous system. And I I just find what you're talking about fascinating because if you think about it, of course our body doesn't want to give us all the information at once because it would overwhelm you Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't survive it if you got all of it at once. So, you know, there's a really incredible understanding now biologically about why that's happening. But right. I also think it's it's just your experience and what you went through is so fascinating, especially because you look at it from a societal level about, well, what are we going to do then? If indeed a lot of addicts are healing themselves from trauma, we, we can't go back and we can't fix people's trauma. We can definitely help them be more trauma-informed and Teach them ways to cope with it, but really the policies right now that we're attempting to adopt for people with opioids seem way more punitive than they do mm-hmm. trauma informed.
1: They are, they absolutely are. And you know, the good thing is that there are policies that are shifting. I've had the opportunity to sit on panels um, with policymakers, public health officials, and law enforcement and there is a move, especially in major cities, and unfortunately it's not this way throughout the country, there is a move towards a different model, towards um, putting the focus on harm reduction services. I think it's essential that if we're going to make any headway with the opioid crisis, that number one, we meet people where they are at, Mm -hmm. and that is the whole basis of harm reduction. We can't help people recover if they're dead and it is as simple as that. So the number one goal should be keeping them alive, which is why needle exchange programs, safe injection sites, fentanyl testing strips, Narcan training, which is the drug that reverses overdose, these are all essential parts of a harm reduction model. The, the rate of relapse for a person entering rehab in you know, the traditional sense is over 80%. Yeah. When people enter... Uh, some sort of treatment through harm reductions, that's about cut in half.
0: Wow, incredible. Which is
1: significant. Yeah. And I think that the reason is is that they're treated through harm reduction clinics. They're treated like human beings first. Yep. And a lot of times, you know, there's a a whole other discussion we could have about how a lot of treatment centers are not regulated, um, and there is a whole, you know, a whole sort of industry built around these sort of rehab mills, which are designed to keep people coming back through them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that it's so important that we take any funds that we are using to incarcerate people and put that towards long-term care. I had a lot of financial privilege growing up. I had, I did have support around me. I wasn't without any support. I may have had like some childhood trauma and depression and these things, but it's not as if I didn't have support around me. And it still took me 15 years of struggling before I got it. So you take away those, those privileges, those financial privileges, those mm-hmm. social privileges, and it is infinitely harder for somebody to recover. It's not impossible. And yes, there are people that like, you know, hit rock bottom with nothing and, you know, sleep on couches and go just go to 12-step meetings and, and figure it out. But they are far and few between. Yeah. 128 people die every day in this country from an opioid overdose. So that's over 46,000 people a year. So when we look at something like the flu or in comparison to something like the opioid crisis, you know, we need to also remember these other things, yeah, <laughs> that, that need our attention. And I, I think it, that
0: it's fascinating what you're talking about because I know what a critic listening right now would say. But people are choosing to do right. drugs.
1: I'm not right. choosing
0: to get a virus that could kill me.
1: Right. So how do you and respond under, to them? Yeah, I understand that, but I think that there is no healthy, emotionally healthy person that decides to become a drug addict. That's not something that as a kid you dream of growing up. (laughs) And, you know, we see the opioid crisis because people turn to painkillers to kill pain. They're just killing emotional pain. There is nobody that I have ever met (laughs) that became addicted to opioids or any other substance that did not have underlying issues that needed to be dealt with whether they were mental health issues or trauma there was something underlying there there is just there's there's that's something that people need to fundamentally understand that it's not a moral failing addiction is not a moral failing it's a public health crisis and nobody has chosen that either and there are plenty of people that experimented with drugs and experiment with alcohol alcohol is also a drug And the only reason that we, you know, but it's a socially acceptable drug. So, you know, you you really have to understand them in the same way. They They are both substances that change the way that you feel. And that's the reason people don't drink wine because, you know, it's the tastiest thing on earth. Yes, we develop a taste for it, but we drink it because it's nice to socialize and it, it lifts it ha- like sort of like lifts something for people and makes them feel a little lighter and they can relax. We all do these things whatever they are so that we have some enjoyment in our life. We don't do them so that we can end up destitute and lose everything to them. So I think that when we start to look through look at addiction through that lens of being a health issue, it's a lot easier to approach it from a non-punitive
0: yeah, Yeah. And I've been thinking about everything. You know, I talk consistently about mental health and I'm just thinking how all of the issues I care so deeply about are going to be just completely pushed to the side while we deal with this other physical health crisis. And I can imagine it's the same for you with people who are addicted to opioids. It's going to be pushed to the side while we deal with coronavirus.
1: Right, right. Right. I mean, I, and I understand I understand why it is that way, but I think we can't forget about that we are still in a major crisis over this.
0: So, Erin, what are the things you do to stay well today? And do you still ever have a pain, a thought, a, an inkling, that feeling in your stomach, that, that addicts report that, oh my God, I could so, it'd be so interested in opioids right this minute?
1: I really don't have those cravings anymore. And and, you know, I know that there. You know, when I was early on in recovery, you know, I would always hear this sort of idea that, like, oh, you know, it could happen any time, so, like, don't ever let your guard down. But for me, at the end, it was so bad in terms of that it just did not work in the way that it used to. It didn't give me any relief, and it mm. it only gave me more anxiety. And I have no – I can hardly remember what it felt like to, to use – an opiate and have it feel good. Wow. It's really, really difficult. I mean I know that it did at one time, but I just I'm a hundred percent sure that if I took an opiate right now and I've had opiates post surgery since then mm-hmm. and they didn't I didn't enjoy the feeling because wow. I just associated it with the feeling of being dope sick, of going through withdrawal, of, like, the anxiety of, like, is this going to trigger something? Like, there's so much anxiety around it for me that it just doesn't feel like a solution. And I have been able in the last 17 years to sort of walk through very painful life stuff that I never thought I could walk through without drugs that I have. And I think that that has given me that sort of confidence that I know that, I may not know how I'm going to get through things, but I know that I can get through them. And that's, you know, due to years and years of doing talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, working with a psychiatrist to be on a mood stabilizer, which helps regulate my emotions, and working on my spiritual life and just practice and time. So I think that all of those factors, you know, really help to inoculate you from relapse, it just takes time and the best way that we can help people get there is by providing access to that long-term aftercare. I really think that long-term aftercare is the key to people being able to stay off of drugs. Yeah,
0: I do too. I do too. I also really don't want to underestimate the power of the love for your sons of a Mm -hmm. strong relationship of, of, as you say, the privilege that you have to have uh, a, roof over your head and adequate food and water and exercise. And, you know, it's it's such a systemic problem when people cannot get um, clean. There's so many underlying things that oh, yeah. it's almost untangling a ball of yarn. It really is.
1: It is because there are so many people that have, you know, socioeconomic barriers, racial barriers, yeah. cultural barriers, and those cultural barriers exist for a lot of us in the in the in the way of shame and stigma that we have in this country around around opiate addiction. So there are so many barriers to getting help that even when you have all of the support it's difficult. I I really feel like it's my life's work to continually speak about this, write about it, advocate for people Because I believe in the human beings that exist underneath that addiction. They are still humans struggling with a human condition, and they deserve food, they deserve shelter, they deserve medical treatment, and they deserve our empathy and compassion. And I think that it can be very easy to forget that when we see them as a caricature, but they're people.
0: Yeah, I want to just close by asking you about the lawsuits against the pharma pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. that really just, you know, doused this country and opioids to make a lot of money um, have on some level said we're responsible. But the amount of money that's coming into states doesn't really seem to be able to help every opioid addict out there and getting people to actually accept the help is another problem. What would we do if you could offer these services to people and they still won't take them?
1: Well, I mean again, I think it's a matter of meeting people where they're at. So if somebody is not interested or ready, then I think that we do our best to keep them alive and that is by making sure that they have access to clean needles, that they have access to information, that they have that they know about and have access to medically assisted treatment. So that there are drugs now like one a popular one is Suboxone, which it it basically helps people with withdrawal symptoms and also contains an ingredient which would put them into severe severe withdrawal if they ingested an opiate. So it's sort of like a blocker and an antagonist. Mm -hmm. And that's been very successful for people. And there are not enough doctors who are licensed to prescribe it. And the doctors who are licensed to prescribe it have a limit on the number of patients who they can have in that program. Look, I, it's not something that like I would want to be on if I was struggling. I wouldn't want to be on it for the rest of my life. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be on it for long term. That said, if that solution is what keeps somebody from being on the streets and like living day-to-day, having to steal or do sex work to support their habit, I'm 100% in support of it. it it's not for me or for anyone else to say like what the... What the one solution is going to be for that person? Because I think there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. But I think our priority should be keeping people alive until if until if and when they're ready to get help.
0: Mm. Yeah, pretty and simple. And then
1: having that long tail help there for them.
0: I, I want to just ask how, if you if it ever just occurs to you how damn lucky you are to be alive.
1: Oh my God! Every every day I think about this all the time because I have lost so many friends, Mm -hmm. so many friends to addiction. And, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get emotional, being on book tour and having readers reach out to me online and people, you know, people at book events reaching out to me, there are so many young people that die and I don't know why I didn't, I didn't die. I, you know, I think that there is some luck there You know, because I certainly had, I had my share of overdoses and I didn't die. And I, you know, my way of sort of honoring the people that didn't make it is writing this book, is speaking about it, is making sure that we remember that they mattered Mm -hmm. because they did.
0: It's beautiful, Erin. And really, this book was so stunning. I read it in one sitting. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. My partner was like, oh, there goes my day. And I was like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Shame was my first drug a conversation with Aaron Carr today. The book, honestly, please buy it, especially if you know someone who is using opioids and you want to have a better understanding. It's called Strung Out, One Last Hit and other lies that nearly killed me. Erin, thanks again for spending some time with us today.